listening to The Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Thank Toronto. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. A big, big show ahead on this program as we look at hockey culture and whether or not hockey has reached its Me Too moment. The firing of Mike Babcock continues to ripple outwards in ways that people did not predict. Your calls on what you experienced and your experiences in hockey locker rooms, and where is the line between a motivational coach and one who is abusive? A fascinating conversation on that coming straight up. But we begin with photo radar. It is coming to the city of Toronto. That was the announcement yesterday from the province of Ontario. It will allow photo radar, but photo radar cameras will not be deployed, not yet. Why? Because the province is requiring that drivers get notice before those devices become operational, and that delay means that photo radar cameras designed to slow drivers down and try and protect protect pedestrians in this city who are increasingly being killed, that that will now be delayed until spring because there must be a 90-day, a 90-day notification. Monday, as I mentioned, Toronto officials got that fine print of these new provincial regulations, including this requirement of a 90-day delay because you must post signs at each location warning that photo radar is coming. Here is John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, talking about that just a few hours ago. I think with respect to the uh, imposition, if I can call it that, of something we didn't expect, which is this 90-day advanced signage requirement, um, it delays by 90 days the day we can get a photo radar into the school zones and community safety zones, and that's unfortunate, but um, it is what it is, and we're going to move now very swiftly to get the signs in, uh, you know, so that we can then have the day, uh, you know, not too many days from now, beyond 90, when we can actually install the cameras. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a crisis on our hands in this city. It is increasingly dangerous to walk anywhere in this city. The congestion, the aggressive drivers, the poor design of the roads. For our elderly citizens, it is even more dangerous. Now, City Council in June approved a plan that would see 50 photo radar cameras across the city, two in each ward, in school and community safe zones identified by data. Toronto will also double its red light cameras, which already issue automatic tickets. Now, that's a different thing altogether, the red light cameras. But on Monday, as you heard, the Transportation Minister was approving this and told reporters, quote, that municipalities have been asking for automated speed enforcement for some time now, and we want to make sure municipalities have the tools they need. So why a 90-day delay for this? Why do we have to put up a sign? There is data that tells us this works. In 2013, the Royal Automobile Club Foundation in Britain showed that fatal and serious collisions fell between 25 and 46 percent at camera sites they studied. Don't we already have these? Remember back in 2018, September of 2018, big fanfare, cameras in school zones. But here's the thing, they do not issue fines. The mayor was asked about this and about signs versus fines. Here's what he had to say. I believe that signs put up warning people photo radar is coming or that it's there uh, will have the effect by by themselves, those signs of causing people to slow down. And I think that's the idea here. I mean, the idea here is to get people to slow down and stop the kinds of injuries and deaths that are happening because people are speeding. That was John Tory speaking at City Hall just a little while ago. But Graham Larkin, who is the executive director of Vision Zero Canada, completely disagrees 
saying, quote, it is very misleading to call these safety cameras or refer to them as automated speed enforcement. That's just wrong. It makes people think there is something with teeth here when, in fact, all it is is a very expensive watch-your-speed sign. Mike Layton is a Toronto City Councillor and joins me on the line. Hi, Mike. Hi there. Where do you stand on this, between signs, between John Tory and what you heard there from Graham Larkin? Well, first of all, what we want to see is better enforcement on our roads. There's a number of things the city has to do, including um, changing our infrastructure so that it's safer. But enforcement, it will always be a critical piece. And we have been waiting. The, The provincial government first changed the rules around this in May 2017, but didn't actually proclaim it until two days ago. And now we're saying we need to wait another three months to install these signs. And let's be clear, this is only in community safety zones around schools where our most vulnerable road users are, 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 are located. Like, we shouldn't have to wait. We shouldn't have to give a couple of days notice. We should be able to implement this. This is about enforcing what is already in law around our schools. You don't think that a 90-day notice is required to drivers? Look, I think we should give notice on the roads as people are entering zones that have uh, uh, that have automated speed enforcement, like we do for red light cameras. Uh, but I don't see a three-month waiting period uh, being uh, being terribly respectful of the the level of crisis that uh, that uh, that we've reached on our roads and the, just the number of fatalities. One third of the fatal injuries. On on our road is speed related or has, speed has a factor is a factor in the in the death we should be able to act faster on this we've not only been waiting since may 2017 but now we're being told wait three more months uh the, that's unacceptable we should be able to act faster than that the province has made a point of doing consultations they opened up consultations in 2018 there's a much talk about better relationship between the province and the city of toronto was there no consultation on this it seems like you guys were caught off guard by the 90 days well we've been we've been making these requests over and over again that the the government needs to take faster action on implementing what was already proclaimed into law all we needed was the regulations to to, to get to, to get uh, put forward which doesn't require the the lengthy legislative change that happens at at, at Queen's Park it can happen very quickly uh, and they've left us waiting and now they're 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 throwing us another curveball by saying uh, you've got to wait another 60 days look we already awarded the contract. We're ahead of this. We've been waiting for you, and now you're holding up uh, this process. Why Why 90 days? Why was that the number that was chosen I, is beyond me. You'll have to ask uh, the provincial government. I just think we should be able to, to react a whole lot faster when, when, when we see the deaths on our and, and serious injuries on our road escalating so quickly. I'm speaking with Toronto City Councillor Mike Layton, and Councillor, your colleague uh, Josh Matlow was on this program yesterday, and I asked him, Had the municipal and provincial leadership failed the vulnerable road users of the city? He said yes. Do you agree? Well, I think that we haven't seen a level of mobilization to address the crisis ahead of us uh, and and that we've been experiencing. Uh, when, When Vision Zero was first put forward, there were those of us that said this isn't enough. And yet, uh, our, our, our mayor and council voted it down just to bring it back a couple months later and increase the level of investment. And then a couple months after that, uh, the, 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 re- the reality is 
when you're faced with a crisis, you need to do more. You need to take swifter action. You need to take more concrete actions. And we just haven't seen that in, in this respect. There have been some moves forward, and this being one, look, I'm celebrating the fact that we're getting this, uh, this, this power and that these regulations are finally in effect. What I'm critical of is the length of time it's taken us to get there. Mike Layton, Toronto City Councillor, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Yesterday on this program, I made a pledge that we would not let this go. We will continue to ask questions. We will continue to demand accountability from our leadership. And we will also put a face to the names of those who have been lost this year, including Celeste Jones, 34 years old. She was struck by a vehicle on Shepherd Avenue East near Abbotsfield Gate on August 30th at about 10.25 p.m., She was found without vital signs. She died at the scene. Police believe the vehicle that struck Jones is a 2007 to 2009 Mitsubishi Lancer. Dark or metallic gray. Fog lamps and a loud or modified muffler. It was moving at a high speed in the center turn lane when it hit Jones. Police believe the collision damaged the windshield. The driver did not stop. Here is Celeste Jones' brother, speaking just a week after her death. And he begins with a message to the driver who fled the scene. And then, a plea for answers. We really believe that you, you're feeling it as well as we're feeling it, and we know you're afraid. Um, this morning, was I was afraid. Uh, you know, I, I got to see my sister for the last time. Who was that person? Why? What, what was going on? What, did they need some help? Um, were they intoxicated? Uh, did they not understand that you know that there's there's lives out here? Like, I mean, that that conversation is just a peaceful conversation. I would just like to have and understand. It is the brother of Celeste Jones, who was killed in a hit and run in this city earlier this year. Police continue to ask for witnesses for information. Let's try and solve this crime, and let's not let this go, because this city is becoming increasingly unsafe. For those who are vulnerable, are elderly, those people who live in portions of the city where there are just no crosswalks, you know, for you see this bus lanes, there's a bus, let somebody off. There's a giant apartment building across the road, but yet it's a kilometer down the road for a place that you can safely cross the street. And even when you are in a crosswalk, that is sometimes not enough. Welcome and thank you for spending some of your time with us this hour. An interesting conversation ahead about motivation and coaches and hockey. If you have played any organized hockey at any level, you have had experience in locker rooms with coaches trying to motivate a team, get them focused, whether the youngsters are a little bit older, whether it's a competitive or a rec league. And some of those experiences are obviously very positive a way to focus the mind, to bring people together as a group. But some of those motivational techniques are also abusive. So where is the line between motivation and bullying? I'm looking for your experiences, your calls. The firing of Mike Babcock has unleashed a storm that no one in hockey or in sports really could have predicted. And The question has been asked, is this the Me Too moment for hockey? Tell me your story. 
416-870-6400, star 640 on your cell. Now, Mike Babcock is now under additional fire. Hall of Fame defenseman Chris Chelios recalling that Babcock, quote-unquote, verbally assaulted teammate Johan Franzen during a playoff series. Chelios and Franzen were teammates with the Red Wings under Babcock from 2005 to 2009. Here is what Chelios told the Spittin' Chicklets podcast. What he did to him at the end, um, you know, he, he was hurt at the time. I think it was a playoffs we lost in Nashville. We got upset with Nashville. And some of the things he said to him on the bench, I don't know what he said to him behind closed doors one-on-one, but he blatantly, you know, verbally assaulted him during the game on the bench. And it got to the point where poor Johan, you know, no one really knowing that he was suffering with the concussion thing and, and the depression thing, uh, he just broke down and had a nervous breakdown not only on the bench, but after the game in one of the rooms in Nashville. So that was probably the worst thing I've ever seen. That is Chris Chelios talking about Mike Babcock's treatment of his teammate. Mr. Franzen later confirmed these allegations to a Swedish newspaper. Quote, I get the shivers when I think about it. That incident occurred against Nashville in the playoffs. It was coarse, nasty, and shocking. But that was just one out of a hundred things he did the tip of the iceberg, said Johan Franzen. Franzen, who Chelio says was hurt at the time of the incident, has not appeared in the NHL since 2015 because of a post-concussion syndrome. In 2018, he told a Swedish newspaper that he'd been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder while also dealing with severe anxiety, depression, and panic attacks. Meanwhile, Chicago Blackhawks assistant coach Mike Crawford will be away from the team while it reviews his conduct with another organization. The Blackhawks have not provided any details about what they are examining, but former NHL forward Sean Avery recently told the New York Post that Crawford kicked him after he was whistled for a too-many-men-on-the-ice penalty when he played for the Kings during the 2006-2007 series season. Speaking on Barstool Sports podcast, former NHL defenseman Brent Sopel said Crawford, quote, kicked me, he choked me, he grabbed the back of my jersey, just pulling it back. The team says it will have no further comment until this review is completed by the Blackhawks organization. And after the resignation, quote unquote, of Bill Peters, Vicki Hall from CBC Sports wrote the following. Peter's departure spells the dawning of a new era in hockey, one in which the coaches themselves are forced to be accountable. Some are calling this hockey's Me Too moment. Others see it as a reckoning, a call to collectively look in the mirror. Regardless, the what happens in the dressing room stays in the dressing room era is over, and it is about time. What do you think? Do you agree? Is it a watershed moment for hockey? What have been your experiences with playing the sport in the locker room with coaches? 416-870-6400, star 640 on cell. Let me know your experience. Do you believe that motivation within a locker room is just that? And that the end justifies the means? That if you go out on the ice and you win, and the camaraderie and 
the memories that you create with that justify whatever motivational tactic was used by a coach? Have we reached a tipping point? Do you have kids in hockey? Do you wonder what's being said to them and what lessons they're learning? You'll recall that in the wake of Jess Allen's comments on CTV in the wake of the firing of Don Cherry, that what she said about bullies and, you know, boys in hockey and, quote, her experience, unquote, set off a firestorm. But was there truth to what she had to say? We'll begin with a call from Port Perry. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You know, I I see what's going down with this, but I I want to take some time out and thank all the coaches I've had over the decades. And I played pretty uh, competitive hockey, and I'm going back decades. But every coach that I played for, I want to take time out to thank them. Not only did they make me, teach me respect and teach me of the game, but they took time out of their livelihoods to coach. And I coached for 20 years. And I just want to call in and thank all the great coaches, man and female, the referees that make this a great game. And just because we're talking about a few bad apples, I don't want people to forget that the time that these people put in to help us as kids. And I really want to emphasize on that. Douglas, I think that is an excellent point, And I am glad that you called in to make it because it is not one-sided. I have known, I've never played organized hockey in, in my career. Thank you again, Douglas. Appreciate that. I, I've, that's just not something that I grew up with. Uh, however, I have known you know, other people who have volunteered their time. My brother-in-law, he coaches hockey. And I know that he does it out of a, an, an immense love for the game. He's motivated but by nothing, but by helping kids have an experience that he had as a kid that was so positive for him and remains positive to this day. Is that your experience? When you reflect back on what happened to you when you played hockey as a kid, were there times where you thought, you know, in retrospect, I think that coach went a little too far. I think that there is so much of that out there, but we do need to balance it out, don't we, between both the positive and the negative. 416-870-6400-STAR-640 on your cell. Has hockey reached a Me Too moment, a tipping point moment in terms of what is allowed in the locker room? And I'm not just talking about the kids because obviously, you know, we have you know, this incredible culture and, and uh, of hockey that really knits communities together, especially in smaller towns and, and cities of this nation. And so it holds people together, but when it comes to the highest level, it, we seem to accept, and certainly have up until this point, we seem to accept that this is a blood and guts game, and a blood and guts game is going to require a certain ruthlessness, a ruthlessness in the locker room, and that we will look the other way as fans, provided that the W's are there. Kevin from Barry's on the line. Kevin, your thoughts? Um, I was just saying, I, it's kind of like parenting. I've got four kids, and the whole point of, of discipline in any kind, whether they've done something wrong in the ice or whatever, is to correct the behavior, not break the spirit. So anytime it crosses the line of breaking the, 
a kid's spirit or even an adult, if it's degrading, um, humiliating, any of that will break the spirit and does not, won't get the desired results long term, maybe short term, but not long term. Versus if you're correcting the behavior, now grabbing the jersey and pulling it back, that I'm not too concerned about. But obviously, you shouldn't be kicking, kicking, or punching. Whatever. Well, let me let me throw out a couple of names: Keenan, Babcock, Crawford. I mean, these are these are names that are synonymous with hockey royalty in terms of coaches, and they were valued for their hard nosed approach to the game. Should that change, Kevin? I think it should because again, if it's if it's hurting their, you know, if it's if it's humiliating in any way or or physically is not good either. Um, the problem is they don't get penalties. If if a guy does that on the ice, if he loses his temper because he didn't like something, he punches someone or kicks somebody, they're either suspended, a penalty, whatever. The coaches aren't held accountable, so they can get as angry as they want, apparently. And I don't think that's right. I think the rules apply all around. You you can't hurt someone, whether it's mentally or physically. Um, and I think that applies. If you break the spirit, you've got all these guys now with PTSD because they were pushed beyond what maybe they should have in order to achieve certain goals. As a hockey fan, I mean, what do you value more at the end of the day? You know, your team hoisting the cup or there being respect, you know, and not abusive behavior? And. Uh, Always not abusive behavior. The challenge is we don't see that stuff in the background. So we, when someone hoists the cup, we don't know what they went through to get there. Um, so we're assuming they did it in an ethical, uplifting way. It's when you start hearing these stories come out that you realize you're like, okay, hey, that, maybe that's not worth it. But, I mean, Toronto hasn't hoisted it in, since I've been alive in 77. <laughs> so apparently... Coach it's only 52 years. I'm not keeping count, but uh, it's 52 yeah. years. All right, thank you so much, Kevin. I appreciate that. An important conversation, and I think a lot to think about, especially for big fans of the game. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas news season. Yes, yes, yes. I've been combing the news wires on your behalf to come up with all of the Christmas-related news topics that you're going to need. See, this is going to help you. If you're taking a lunch break right now, you can eat the tuna sandwich, then you can head back into work, and you're going to be armed with all kinds of anecdotes. You're going to head into maybe your Christmas party season. You're going to have a couple of Bon Mots to drop, courtesy of Ma. Let's begin, shall we? It is an interesting time for the Christmas tree industry right now. This is from CNN. There are fewer Christmas trees being grown than 10 to 15 years ago, yet more people are buying them, and they are paying more money. According to the National Christmas Tree Association, two major tree-producing states, North Carolina and Oregon, have fewer trees to offer this year than in years past. However, don't panic. Don't panic, people. Despite the shortage, there are still enough trees to go around. Perhaps, though, not the kind of tree you want. Because here in Toronto, according to Global News, while there might be a shortage of firs, there are other less traditional options available. That screams Charlie Brown Christmas to me right there. You might have to have a spruce or a white pine in Ontario. Oh, the white pine. If not, just get the thing early or you're going to be disappointed. This according to Shirley Brennan, 
who is the executive director of the Christmas Tree Farmers of Ontario. How do I get myself a job with a tree organization, just like a tree or I, I do I do comms for tr- Christmas trees. That's I, I, I'm not busy maybe 11 months of the year, but, you know, that one month, man. So now what the advice from Shirley Brennan, the executive director of the Christmas Tree Farmers of Ontario is, is get your tree early. Go get it now. You don't have to put it up right away. You just wrap it, keep it in a you know cool space. Then you can bring it out later, you see. Because if you wait, according to the experts, according to the people who represent the people trying to sell you trees, get a tree now. There's never been a better time to buy a tree than now, say tree growers. Take that with a grain of salt. In Parker County, Texas... Moving on, more Christmas news. Somebody has stolen a key part of the nativity scene. In Oliver and Pamela Washburn's front yard, the wise men, Joseph and the Virgin Mary, are all gazing down at nothing. Oliver's security camera captured video of a young woman walking up and stealing the baby Jesus and his manger. As soon as I saw there was a person there, I came out and they were gone. Despite the clear color image, the thief still hasn't been caught. But don't think that Sheriff Larry Fowler isn't taking it seriously. I can assure you this is as far from a joke as you can get. The Washburns are more philosophical about it. We've decided that the suspect probably needed Jesus more than we did. Jim Ryan, ABC News, Dallas. That is news from Parker County, Texas, where the Messiah is is missing. To Mississippi now, where residents in one city in that state have protested a large pothole in their neighborhood by decorating it with a holiday tree. The Enterprise Journal reports that residents of Macomb's Edgewood Edgewood neighborhood have topped this pothole and its yellow traffic cone with tinsel, spray-painted pine cones, white leaves, and holly berries. The newspaper says residents plan to add lights and presents in hopes of drawing the city's attention, come fix the pothole. Meanwhile, online retailer Amazon has had to pull some Christmas ornaments that were, oh, I don't know, a little tasteless. The ornaments in question bore the images of the Auschwitz concentration camp. The Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum tweeted photos of the items and asked Amazon to remove them, calling them inappropriate, disturbing, and disrespectful. Amazon says in a statement that all sellers must follow guidelines and those who don't will be subject to action. The museum says it's calling on other sites to take down similar products, now including a beach towel. Auschwitz has become a symbol of Nazi Germany and the murder of six million Jews with over a million killed at the camp. Daria Albinger, ABC News. You know, those are things that we shouldn't just have to say out loud. You know, that the Auschwitz Christmas tree ornament is inappropriate. I think that's a given, is it not? Back to Toronto for our final Christmas news story. A Toronto woman is embracing the absurdity of the holiday season after a spat over the Santa that was in her front yard. You see... This woman is a bit of a fan of Tim Burton, you know, a bit of a a zombie kind of a nightmarish kind of bent. So she had a zombie Santa in her front yard for Halloween. She liked it so much she decided to keep it. Maybe it'd be festive. Well, somebody took exception to that. They left a note, the neighbors, 
this note on the Santa. It said, quote, Your neighbors on the street, would you like you to remove the Halloween Santa? It is scaring the little children. Much appreciated. So what did this woman do? Well, she made Santa even more ghouly. And now, someone in the neighborhood has stolen Santa. Santa is gone. All that is left are his severed hands and feet. Santa is gone. Zombie Santa has been taken. And that is a roundup of your Christmas news. Welcome back, and thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. Stats show that nearly 2 in 10 women report that they have been harassed at work. That, according to a recent report by Statistics Canada. And apparently certain work environments are far more ripe for harassment. Research shows that healthcare workers experience higher rates of sexual harassment, as do those in the hospitality industry, including servers and hotel cleaners. Laura Hensley is a Global News online journalist and has filed an important piece on this on globalnews.ca and joins me on the phone. Hi, Laura. Hi, Alan. What has your research found about the level of sexual harassment that is being reported in the workplace? Yeah, certainly. So like you mentioned, two in 10 women say they've been harassed at work, and these are only the ones who've admitted to it or reported. So there's other research that suggests that this number is actually much higher, and there's certain environments, too, that workplace harassment is just much more common. The places you... Sorry, the places that you said, but also industries where they might be a bit more male-dominated. So the tech sector, for example, you know, workplace sexual harassment can be part of a culture. And unless there's sort of policies in place, many women can experience it, unfortunately. Your um, article online begins with a woman talking about the experience of having a manager continually stare at her breasts. And that sort of raises uh, a question about where we say harassment begins and ends, where that line is. And it's very difficult sometimes to say precisely where that is. That's exactly the problem with sexual harassment. And one of the reasons why it's so hard to report, it can be hard to identify, you know. The women that I spoke to shared a wide variety of experiences. The one that I featured in the story, she said her boss repeatedly looked at her chest. He would make sort of these subtle comments. He made her feel uncomfortable. But that type of behavior, it's very easy to dismiss. You know, a lot of women I spoke to said, well, maybe I was overreacting or maybe it was all in my head. But that is what sexual harassment is. It's that behavior that starts to make you feel really uncomfortable. And it can be as subtle as staring, or it can be as pronounced as, you know, touching or groping. So it crosses those boundaries. But I think it's important for women to say, does this make me feel uncomfortable? And is it unwanted? And if yes to either of those things, then you can classify that as harassment. Now, the women that you spoke to, what has their experience been with going to HR and reporting these sort of things? There's been, unfortunately, not a great outcome for one of the women I featured in the story. She reported it, and an internal investigation found that her boss's behavior did not violate workplace harassment code. And a few weeks later, she was given a termination notice. So this really reinforces the fear that so many women have around reporting. Um, But on the flip side, the other woman I interviewed 
did report this to HR, and, you know, she had a very different outcome. HR concluded that this person did actually violate their code, and he was disciplined. So it really depends on the workplace, but it's something that has to be done from the top, and people need to model this behavior and say, listen, we will not tolerate any form of harassment in the workplace. This is an ongoing series that you're working on, and you put a call out for other women who have similar stories to contact you. Certainly, we want to hear from other people who've experienced this. We really want to continue reporting. There are so many issues that affect women. Workplace sexual harassment is just one, but we don't want our coverage to to end when the broken series is finished. So we really encourage anyone who has a story, story to reach out to us, and we would love to chat with them. Laura Hensley is a journalist with globalnews.ca, and her series Broken is on globalnews.ca, and you can read the latest installment now. Laura, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. For parents out there right now, there is a lot of concern about what is going to happen tomorrow, especially if you have high school students in your family. I certainly have a grade 9 student, and right now I am expecting that she will not be in class tomorrow because of a scheduled one-day walkout. Now, both sides are apparently still talking, and there is a possibility of a last-minute deal that would stop this one-day walkout, but it looks unlikely. It does appear that both sides are far apart. Now, I want to take you through a couple of things that are being said today by both the union and the Minister of Education to get at some truth about what is really at stake here Uh, at the bargaining table. What are the major sticking issues? Now, there's been a lot of talk about class size, and the government is proposing that classes grow to an average of 25 students from last year's 22. That has come down from the original proposal of 28, and the government also says that students must take two e-learning classes Originally, four had been proposed. So the government is saying, listen, we have walked back some of the proposals that we had made that have been sticking points at the table. Here is Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, speaking in question period today about the other side at the bargaining table. For 204 consecutive days, there have been no material change, no change at all to the position of the unions. How is that an acceptable proposition for parents who want all the parties to be reasonable and who want the parties to be focused on keeping kids in class? In fact, Stephen Lecce, as you heard right there, speaking in the House today, basically saying the union hasn't budged at all. What Stephen Lecce is saying is that this is all about money follow the money at the end of the day, that it is compensation that is a major sticking point, not class sizes, which is largely what the union is talking about. Here's Harvey Bischoff speaking on this radio station earlier this morning. Harvey Bischoff, he is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, who, of course, are planning to walk out tomorrow if there is no deal. Over the weekend, we spent a grand total of a half hour face-to-face at the bargaining table, um, and, you know, those talks were not substantial. We're waiting for them uh, to bring positions that actually maintain the quality of the education system in Ontario, a world-class education system, by the way, um, and they're refusing to do so, even in the face of what parents so clearly told them they wanted. That there is Harvey Bischoff, the head of OSSTF, and what he's referring there at the end is a Global News exclusive story reported by Travis Danraj that shows that the consultations that the province undertook to talk to parents about what they wanted, overwhelmingly parents said, 
well, we don't want bigger class sizes, and the government hasn't actually released that information and obviously hasn't taken it into account, or at least has not acted on it. It continues to propose a increase, again, in average size to 25 students per class from last year's 22. It's a bit disingenuous. I mean, you know, if the government goes and consults and, you know, nobody ever wants to see class sizes bigger or wants to see the, you know, funding envelope shrink, but yet at the same time, the government has to rein in costs on some level at at some point. And that brings us to the money. Because you will hear Harvey Bischoff talking about, listen, all we want is to keep what we have. And what we what we have in terms of pay, you know, has to go up more than 1% to be able to keep pace with inflation, with the cost of living. Except for the government has already passed legislation that says no public sector worker can get more than a 1% raise. So how do you get between those two things? I will tell you, and this is going to be important to watch, watch out for this. There is something in that legislation that allows an individual minister to over or basically ignore the provision to basically come forward and say there's, you know, circumstances beyond my control. We must go more than 1% in this particular case, even though we have legislation that says we can't. So keep your eye on that, because that may be the wiggle room that the Ford government will need. But don't hold your breath, parents out there, because your teenager is going to be home tomorrow, I think. I don't see a deal. It's possible, but it seems like both sides are far apart and there is bad blood. Keep your eye on that. Keep your eye on Global News Television tonight at 5.30 and 6 and your ears glued to this radio station, Global News Radio, 6.40 Toronto. Can I get a beat? News out of New York that Drake is the king of streaming. The rapper has now been named Spotify's most streamed artist of the decade. Spotify announcing today that Drake has been streamed 28 billion times in the last 10 years. Who's second? Anybody got a guess? Ed Sheeran. Post Malone, Ariana Grande, and Eminem round up the top five. The most Stream song of the decade, Ed Sheeran, Shape of You. For 2019, Drake continues to be number one streamed in Canada. But internationally, it's somebody else. Who takes home the most streamed award for 2019? Post Malone. Thank you for spending some time with us this hour. I'm Alan Carter. We'll see you again tomorrow at noon.